Well, I don't, uh, I don't know how you have felt over these last uh, several weeks, but for me, I find that this world is a place where we can quickly become overwhelmed and sad uh, given the front page uh, news. In fact, it wouldn't be a surprise to anybody. I, let me just give you a few of the headlines over the last several weeks. Even this weekend, a coup attempt in Turkey, 200 people dead. The Bastille Day attack in Nice, France, 84 people instantly out into eternity. A couple weeks ago, in fact, as we were worshiping here together, news was just trickling out that the wee hours of Sunday morning, 50 people had been brutally murdered in a nightclub in Orlando. It was staggering as I looked at the statistic yesterday that year to date, 322 people have been shot and killed just in the city of Chicago alone. Several incidents that we're all familiar with watching the news involving police officers and black men have resulted in the tragic loss of human life. And just a couple of weeks ago, five police were killed in Dallas and several others subsequently across uh, the country. It's no surprise to anybody that's in this room this morning that there's political turmoil in our country. And may I uh, suggest to you that the rhetoric is equally heated on both sides of that debate. Times like these when I firmly believe that the church has an opportunity to demonstrate for a deeply cynical, confused world the difference that Jesus can make in a life. And the gospel, I firmly believe with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength that the gospel is the answer and God gave this world the truth He gave them the church in order that we might be the conduit by which we share with a world that so desperately needs to be redeemed from the bondage and from the effects of sin. We have the answer. The church has the answer. When we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are called to live, we have the answer to a world that's in chaos. And I want to, just briefly this morning before we start, I just want you to bow with me and I want to pray. I want to pray for the condition of our world. But even bigger than that, I want to pray for the condition of the church of Jesus Christ who somehow believes that it's okay to sit back idly on the sidelines and be and do nothing. May God forgive us for that attitude. We have the answer. We are the conduit to this world of God's grace and his mercy. Let's pray. God, I pray for these and so many other situations in our world today. God, we can't help but think of the parents that last Sunday woke up with beautiful little children. And as a result of this week, they'll be burying those little children. God, I pray that you'd give us a heart and empathy for those people that we will never know, but have just this week experienced unimaginable loss. God, we think of our uh, black neighbors and friends who, God, we, we don't understand everything in their world. What we do understand, we don't know the details of every circumstance. What we do know is that uh, somebody who was deeply loved by family and friends is no longer here. That's what we do know. And God, I pray that you would cause us to enter in to those worlds and to seek to understand the hurt and the pain. God, we pray for the families of these uh, police officers who willingly put their lives at stake on a daily basis in order to protect those things we value in this country. I pray for those family members of those whose lives have been lost. 
God, we pray that you would bring comfort to their hearts today. Help us to, in some small way, understand the deep grief that's in their hearts. God, we confess that at times, depending on how we're wired, we can enter into this political debate and we can be so incredibly abrasive, no matter what our position, no matter what our view is. God, cause us to be people that embrace peace, people that speak truth, but we do so in love and with dignity and with respect. God, if that should be true of any place in our culture, in our society, it, it should begin with the church of Jesus Christ, with those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who say our lives have been transformed and changed by the gospel. It ought to begin right here with us. And I pray that we, as the church, collectively and as individuals, that we today, as we leave this place, we might be committed to be salt and light in a world that so desperately needs truth in the midst of chaos. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, which makes it possible for us to share things which are not just life-changing, but eternity-changing for those that place their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. May we be examples and testimonies of that in the world in which we find ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been on a journey over uh, the last several months. Jerry and I have been taking you through tracing the story of God's redemption of mankind, of his creation. We began in Genesis, and today we're going to spend just a little bit of time in the New Testament book of Acts. Now, I, I don't want to take for granted, because I know there's some of you, you grew up in church, and you're very capable of getting up here on the stage, and you could probably say most of what I'm going to say here today. Then there's others of you didn't grow up in church. There's a lot of stuff you just don't know, and, and we can easily take it for granted that we start talking about something, and, and everybody's just going, yeah, I know that. I've heard that story. I recognize, Jerry recognizes that that's not always true. In background, just a little bit about the Gospels. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written from four different perspectives, yet saying and covering the same stories, we read in the Gospels about the birth of Jesus Christ, his life, and the resurrection. Now, we also read in the stories of the Gospel, and this is really paramount to why, the, why we have the Gospel record, because it gives for us an account of the incarnation. That is God deciding that he would come to earth in bodily form, and he would live amongst people like you and like me. I could have only wished that he had chosen like uh, 2015, 2016 to do that. Wouldn't that be cool? Walk around with Jesus? Well, we're thankful for the incarnation, and that's what the Gospels present to us. In fact, the Gospels give us the basis for uh, the Gospel message, which is that Jesus was born, that Jesus lived. He lived a sinless, perfect, holy life, uh, that he was uh, put to death for sin, for crimes that he did not commit, but that he didn't stay in the grave, that three days later he rose victoriously, from the grave, conquering not only death, but most importantly, sin. And that, my friends, is the gospel message. And that's why we have the gospels. And when Jesus died, we read in the gospel that his followers were in turmoil. They were scared, they were confused, they were defeated. Imagine having given your life to this cause, believing that Jesus was the king that you've been waiting for that was going to relieve all of your temporary suffering, only to find out that he's put to death, that he's put in a grave, and then three days later to have your whole world turned upside down, that exactly what he told you he was going to do, he did do, and he rises up from the dead, he's alive, he's wandering around, talking to people, interacting with people, appearing to people over a period of 40 days to more than 500 individuals, 
And then we come to the book of Acts, which is going to be a transition. Jesus is going to go back to heaven, and he's going to say some things to his followers in chapter 1, as Luke records for us. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1 just real quickly. Basically, Luke is, is confirming for us that Jesus is alive, that Jesus was seen by all these witnesses. And then Jesus says to them, hey, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait, because something really incredible is, is going to happen. Verse 6, it says, so they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? The only thing they can think about is the here and now. So yeah, what about the circumstances that we're currently facing? Are, are you now going to establish your kingdom? And he said to them, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then verse 8 is a verse that if you've studied Scripture, you're very familiar with. Jesus said, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. In other words, i got big things in store for you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send another one. That's going to be the Holy Spirit. He's going to indwell you and he's going to equip you so that you can do everything that I've called you to do. Verse 9 says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. Now we look at these people and we go, what are you afraid of? I don't know about you, but if you were standing around and Jesus is having this conversation with you and then all of a sudden it's just like, where'd he go? Where is he? Verse 10 says, and while they were gazing up into heaven, and we talk about that like, why are they standing there gazing up into heaven? Well, what would you be doing? That's what I'd be doing, right? They're looking around going, what just happened? He was here. And then all of a sudden, behold, it says, two men stood by them in white robes. That's scary. Anytime somebody shows up in a white robe and they're standing next to you, that's a scary thing. They show up, they're in white robes, and they say, why do you stand looking into heaven? That's got to be one of the craziest, dumbest questions in the book of Acts. What do you mean, why are we looking into heaven? He was just talking with us, and now, poof, he's gone. That's why we're looking into heaven. And then the men, of, the men say to these people, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Great. Now the question is, now what do we do? Right? You're looking, at a, you're looking around. In fact, when you get to chapter 2, you remember their leader. Their leader is Peter. Peter was the boldest of the disciples. In fact, so bold that we read in the gospel record that when a middle school girl came up to him and said, hey, I think I saw you with Jesus. He got scared and denied that he had any kind of relationship with Jesus. That's your boldest disciple. Jesus is gone. Now it's up to these people, these followers of Jesus, to go out into all the world and share the good news of the gospel. Doesn't sound like it's going to be too effective. I mean, if Peter is as bold as you get and he denies that he knows Jesus when a middle school girl confronts him, that's not really good. And so Peter, in chapter 2, preaches his first and I would say to you probably his best sermon that he ever preaches here in Acts chapter 2. We read in the first several verses of chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit comes and fills the followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus said, I'm going to leave for you. In fact, look at verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, some of you come from a charismatic background. You really have focused on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Man, this gets you excited. I mean, when I start reading that, you go, oh. That's who it is right there, that rushing mighty wind. Can you imagine what it must have been like? There's others of us, and the Holy Spirit scares us. I mean, God, he's good. He's the Father. Jesus, we read all about him in the Gospels. He's good. The Holy Spirit, that sounds pretty scary stuff to me right there. And so some of us as conservative evangelicals, we kind of get scared 
of the Holy Spirit. There's a book that, that's written on the Holy Spirit. It's called Forgotten God. There's some of us that just kind of want to forget the Holy Spirit. Yet we shouldn't, right? We can't overlook these verses. It comes from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, and it's filled the entire house where they were sitting. And, and you get this, verse 3, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Figure that out. We don't have a time to really exposit the text. Figure that out. It's a scary situation, and yet it's awesome. And it says, verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues that the Spirit gave them. And God gives them these other tongues. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they're able to speak in languages that they do not know. The ability to be able to speak to what we see gathered here is a, is a very diverse group of Jewish people. And these followers of Jesus are able to speak with them in their native tongues. And while the crowds were amazed, some suggested that uh, the reason why this was happening was because they were drunk, verse 13. Peter explains to the people in verse 15 that it's actually not that they're drunk, it's only 9 a.m. And then he begins to preach to them. The words of the prophet Joel, he talks to them about the fact that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God. And that while they had crucified him, God had raised him from the dead and had conquered death. He refers to the great patriarch David and how David had talked about this Messiah that would come, and this indeed was that Messiah. And look at what their response was, verse 37. It says they were cut to the heart. Why? Why were they cut to the heart? Because they recognized that this Jesus, this one that they had put to death as a common criminal, he was indeed the Messiah that they had waited for for centuries. And instead of welcoming him, they rejected him. And now they're fearful because Peter also tells them, hey, guess what? He's alive. I mean, if you put somebody to death and now they were alive, you might be fearful for your life. In verse 37, they say to Peter, brothers, what should we do? It's interesting to me that a lot of people that come to Christ in 2016 because they really don't understand the gospel message that we, so, we see so vividly given to us in the gospels, they never ask that question, what should we do? They simply confess Jesus as Lord of their life and then go on with life as if nothing has changed. Let me tell you this, that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, everything is supposed to change. Everything, the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, is changing. It's becoming new. It's becoming different. And so Peter tells them that they need to repent and acknowledge, testify of their new relationship with Jesus, and they show that by being baptized. And the text says at least 3,000 people did that that day. I don't know about you, but if, if, if I would have gotten out of school and the first time I preached, 3,000 people responded to my message, I'm thinking I just would have retired right at that moment, right? I mean, it's kind of like one of these guys in the NBA, you know, the first year in the league and they win a championship. It's kind of like, I'm out, right? I mean, I made my millions. I'm good. If you're a preacher, you go, man, 3,000 people responded to me. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. In the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, and we read about the establishment of the church and what uh, Jesus called his calls the church his bride. We read about the first deacons, and we read about the conversion of Paul, and we see God do extraordinary things as the gospel sweeps across the Middle East and Europe, and it's a fascinating New Testament book. What we come to understand, though, in the book of Acts is that God's plan for reaching this world is the church. The book of Acts tells us about the beginning of the church and the early history of the church as it's written and recorded by Luke, and this is where we first learn about what a church should look like that is committed to the mission that Jesus gave his followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So look with me real quickly at Acts chapter 2 and verses 42 to 47. Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's communion. When we take communion together, we did uh, a couple weeks ago. We're remembering the Lord's death and the sacrifice that he made for us. So they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
to communion, to praying. And verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with, look at what it says, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now here's the problem. Many of us have a very different view of what a church should be than what we find there in Acts chapter 2. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an article in the uh, Tuesday, July 5th, News and Observer, and the title of the article was 10 Reasons I Take My Toddler to Church. And I read it, you know, as a 50-year-old white fat guy, uh, and I'm, I'm going, I don't really get that stuff. Some of you, at least in the first service, some of these young moms, they're going, I totally get that, like that's me. I could have written that article. Here's 10 reasons, real quickly. Number one reason, sometimes I need a break. I don't understand that. Sometimes I need a break. That's why I take my toddler to church. Number two, for me, there's coffee, and I didn't have to make it. Number three, for them, there are snacks. Now, admit it, for a lot of you that have small kids, as soon as you get in the car or when you get in the car from your house to go to the church, they're already talking about what snack they might get, not what they might learn about Jesus. We get it. It's what, it's what the snack might be. Number four, it's free socialization for the kids, especially you homeschool families, right, who live in the shelter of your house. We did for a long time, then we came out. It's free socialization for the kids. That's why I take my toddlers there. Number five, I get to wear real clothes. I look at that and think, man, if I could live in a pair of gym shorts and a t-shirt, I'm good. Anybody else with me? Moms are saying I get to wear real clothes at church. Number six, adult music is nice. Number seven, the ladies love them. Number eight, the kids take a good nap. <laughs> they wear them out at church, then they come home, they take a good nap, and I get some more peace and quiet. That's kind of my interpretation of that. Number nine, there's no judgment. And number 10, someone totally legitimate. I've made some good friends. But you know, I read that article and thought, well, for, for a good portion of our culture, of our society, they don't see the church as anything more than just that. It's just kind of a place that's kind of created for my own convenience and a place that's created for my benefit. One Bible teacher described the modern church using five metaphors there not unique with him, and they're certainly not unique with me. But I want to use those five metaphors this morning to kind of compare and contrast the church uh, as it is sometimes, and comparing it with the church in Acts 42 as God intended for it to be. So just real quickly, five metaphors. Number one is a movie theater. Now we go to a movie theater to be entertained, and now maybe we will occasionally be inspired. I remember the first time I saw what's one of my favorite movies, Gladiator. You know, I walked out of that movie theater and I was inspired. I wanted to uh, rip my shirt off and put some armor on and, you know, conquer a country, you know, or at least go into the Coliseum and fight a lion or do something like that. I was inspired. We go into that movie theater, if for no other reason, just for a short time, uh, to be taken from the problems and the pressures and the issues of life. But as soon as the movie is over, unless you go to a movie yourself, usually when, when I have been to a movie, I'm with other people, and immediately when you walk out of the movie theater, what do you begin to do? You're going to talk about the movie, right? You're going to evaluate that actor that you went to see, and you were looking forward to their role in this film. You'd read some reviews of it, and you begin to review. How did they do? Or the special effects, depending on what it is. Oh, that wasn't believable. It wasn't real. They could have done a better job, and you start evaluating it. You get my point? That's somehow true 
a good portion of the time for how some of us approach our Sunday morning gatherings. We come in to be entertained just for a little while, maybe inspired sometimes, and then as we walk out, it's so easy to slip into the evaluation mode, isn't it? We just sang a song which is talking about splitting cedars. Some of you, it's easy to walk out in a few minutes and go, what the heck was that all about? I didn't like that song. Certainly didn't like the music behind it. That bass, man, what is the deal with that sound guy back there? That bass is thumping, makes my heart start pumping, makes my... Now, some of that evaluation is natural, is normal. Uh, trust me, if you were in our staff meeting, you would see that I'm the king of evaluation, all right? So I'm preaching to me uh, right now. We start talking about the songs that we sang that we didn't sing. I like this song. How come they don't sing that song? As if we were singing the songs to you. Uh, we begin to evaluate. Um, in fact, some of you right now, you're in evaluation mode of me. You think I didn't quite make that transition well between talking about the five metaphors and how am I going to land the plane and when am I going to do it and we're going to get out on time today because we usually don't when Brian's speaking. Some of you are starting to think about that right now. I get that. I understand that. We want the Holy Spirit to work, but we're going to give him 75 minutes. You go into 90, I check out. We want to be challenged, but I've said this before, we really have no intention of changing. Isn't it amazing in our culture how we love the idea as followers of Jesus of being challenged, but really we don't have any, uh, any, any, any notions of walking out those, those doors and our lives actually being different. The Acts 2 church, the early church, look with me again in uh, verse 42. They came to be taught. They wanted the truth. I guarantee you they had no lights, they had no sound, they certainly didn't have a backdrop like this. Is this beautiful? They didn't have any of that stuff. You know, whoever was standing up in front of them, probably sitting, by the way, teaching them, probably had sandals on and their toenails weren't quite right and dusty and dirty and there wasn't anything to be entertained by. Verse 42 says they wanted to be taught. In fact, they were devoted to this. They wanted to know the truth, and yet many of us are content to come each Sunday for the purpose of just simply, can I say it? Just simply of kind of evaluating and sometimes enjoying the performance of other people up here on this stage. That's not the way God intended for his church to be. It's not the purpose. The purpose is we come together and we learn this book so that we can know our God and have the knowledge that is necessary to navigate through life. This early church was obsessed with being taught. Sometimes we look at ourselves as the audience. Can I say to you that there is an audience and it's not me and it's not you? We've said it kind of as a trite little phrase, but there's an audience of one. It isn't you and it isn't me. It's the God of the universe. Can I challenge you that when you leave this place today, you ask the question, is God pleased? We sang those songs to him, not you. Is God pleased? Our greatest concern should be that he is pleased. Second metaphor is the store. Um, now, for many of us, we approach uh, the church like we do a store. You, you know how it is, at least I do. In fact, if you need a deal on something, I am your guy. I know how to work the American system of retail. I got it all figured out. And I perfectly fit the bill of the American consumer. We go into a store and we look to see, first of all, do they have what I want? And then that's only part of the equation. If you have what I want, then what? You got to have it at the price that I want to pay, which is sometimes very difficult for me. I'm the quintessential uh, guy that likes uh, this at this budget. I'm your worst nightmare if you uh, are a store. And, and, and so if we don't, if they don't have what I like, what do I do? I go someplace else and they know it. They know if I go to Home Depot and they don't have what I want or if they don't have it at the price that I want, what can I do? Less than one mile, Lowe's Home Improvement Store. And if you won't give it to me for that price, I guarantee you they will because you guys love just kind of chopping each other up because it is all about me. In fact, we have this saying in the American culture, it goes something like this, the customer is always right, I'm always right. 
No matter how wrong I am, I'm always right. Because it's all about me. And it's about my business. And that you might lose my business. Or, worse yet, that I may go home or even in my car get on my Yelp app and I might say something bad about you because you didn't take care of me. You know what's unfortunate is that's sometimes how we approach the church, isn't it? The early church was all about the other person. They were all about other people. Look, at with, look with me again at verse 44. All who believed were together, and they had everything in common. Now, did they really all just like the same things? I mean, they came to the potluck, and they went, Wow, oh, I like that dish too. We all do. Wow, I like my burgers cooked like that too. You know, well, I like mine rare too. Nobody likes them well done, medium well. Everybody likes them the same. Did they really, you know, here's the the thing to remember. It, It wasn't necessarily that they didn't have different tastes, different desires, different things, but they had the most important thing in common. And do you know what that was? Jesus. They were family. And so they were able to defer to the other person because we're family. And so they had all things together, and they had all things in common. In fact, verse 42, the word fellowship is from uh, the Greek uh, word koinonia. The root word is commonness or commonality. Every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used to indicate some kind of sharing. In other words, the very foundation of the early church was giving, not accumulating stuff For me, the very foundation of the early church was we just want to give it away. We just assume that God's not blessing us with what we have so that we can consume it on ourselves. We assume that God gives us what he gives us in order that we might be the conduit, his conduit, to bless other people. You know what I'm so thankful for? Is I'm so thankful that this week as I was studying and preparing for today, and I'm thinking about Northwest and our fellowship here in Cary, North Carolina, I believe that marks so many of you here at Northwest Community Church. I believe you're marked by that sense of giving, by that sense of sharing. Sometimes as a staff, we're overwhelmed to see what goes on. And we always get the front row seat to see what's happening. So many of you don't know everything that happened just in this last month where people just overwhelmingly, generously gave for the benefit of other That marked the early church. It wasn't the consumer mentality that says, you are here for me. Do you have what I want? If you don't have what I want, I'll go someplace else. Let me tell you, if you're visiting with us and you're checking out uh, Northwest, be prepared that you're going to be disappointed somewhere down the road. No matter what you see right now, uh, there's a bunch of really messed up people that are led by some people that are really messed up. Life gets that way here at Northwest on a regular basis. Okay, I just want you to know what you're getting. And if your attitude is, me, 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 serve me, serve me, I'm always right, do what I need to do, you're going to be eternally disappointed, or at least disappointed as long as you're here at Northwest Community Church. The early church was not consumed, consumed with me, they were consumed with others. Third metaphor is a restaurant. Imagine if you walked into a restaurant a few minutes from now. One of the guys came up and said, hey, before you sit down, I'm going to need you. Would it be possible for you to come back and just wash a few dishes? Because we, if we're going to serve our guest food, we, we, we're out of person today and we really need you to wash some dishes. Or um, we're, we're going to need somebody to, um, we, we need somebody to cook. Would it be possible for you just for a few minutes and then somebody will serve you, but would it be possible? How would you react to that? Now for me, I'd get up and leave of the store metaphor, right? I mean, it's all about me. What do you mean wash dishes? What do you mean cook? I didn't come here to serve. I came here to be served. 
And so many of us, that's the way we walk in a church. We come in to be served, not to serve. Can I challenge you this morning gently as one of your shepherds that really loves you and cares about you and wants what's best for you, uh, that you begin to slay that attitude if that's what you have, that the rest of us are here to serve you? I heard a pastor say this, and I believe it's so true, that growth happens much more quickly in the kitchen than at the table. If you don't write anything else down, that'd be a good thing to write down. Growth happens much more quickly in the kitchen than at the table. There There are some of you who are fully capable of cooking a meal, spiritually speaking. You're mature and you're capable of leading a life group or a Bible study or leading a small uh, accountability group, or you're very capable of working in our children's ministry and being incredibly effective there, or in our student ministry, or God's given you a strong, healthy body, and you could roll your lazy self out of bed at 7 o'clock in the morning and come help set up or tear down a few minutes from now. And yet, if we're not careful living in Cary, North Carolina, what happens? We slip into the mode that I have come here as a consumer living in America to be served, not to serve. For some of us, we need to push away from the table and get into the kitchen. Can I challenge some of you to do that? That's what the early church did. In fact, so much so that the text says sometimes they actually had to sell their stuff so that they could help other people. They didn't sell everything. We're going to find that out in just a few chapters. When Ananias and Sapphira have a piece of land that they're going to sell, they didn't sell everything, but if you had a need, they were willing to to sell everything because it wasn't about them. It wasn't about serving them. It was about serving other people. They weren't me-centered. They were others-centered. Fourth metaphor is really easily understood, and that is when you go to a gas station, you drive up and you do what? You, you fill your car up and you don't think about it till the next time you need gas. I was always amazed when I was a little boy about my dad and the gas gauge. Maybe some of you lived like this, but my dad delighted in just seeing how close he could get to empty. Some of you are going, you. I think it's a, a little bit of a, an issue that needs to be uh, dealt with. I remember even as a little boy saying to my dad, 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 does it cost less to wait till the last minute? I mean, does, don't you put gas in no matter what? So just kind of use a quarter of a tank and that's empty. Rather than we're going, oh, kids pray, pray we make it to the gas station. Why? <laughs> right? You know why you laugh? Because you play the same game. That's what you do. Well, you go to a gas station, you drive up, you fill your car up, you don't think about it until the next time uh, you need gas, a week out or the habit that you have when you see the needle on E, whatever it is. And that's how we tend to look at church, isn't it? We come and we hear a sermon and we sing some songs and then we walk out and we really don't think about it until seven days later, unless something happens in our life which isn't really compatible with the way we thought our life should be going. And that's not the way it was in the early church. In fact, verse 46 says, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. These were the first life groups, by the way. Biblical basis for life groups right there. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. In other words, they did life together. Not just one day a week, but day to day. You know why some of you don't really feel like you have connections and relationships with people here? It's not because we're not a friendly church. You say we're not a friendly church, that's where I kind of bow up a little bit. This is the most friendly church I've ever been to in my entire life. You agree? I really believe that. I, we have people tell us that on a regular basis. I had a lady just a couple of weeks ago that I met that just moved here, and she, she said to somebody just a couple of weeks ago, she said, this is the friendliest church I've ever been to in my life. And I'm guessing she's probably been to a number of churches. The reason why some of you don't feel like you connect and have relationships is because you were not committed to what they were committed to in the early church, and that is day by day, they lived life 
together. We're going to talk about life groups here in just a few weeks. We're going to put an emphasis on that, encourage you, challenge you to get involved in a life group and do life with a group of people. You want relationships, you want to have people that'll, be through, that'll go through life's good times and bad times with you. It begins when you start doing life, not just every seven days. Hey, how are you? I'm just fine. How are you? Fine, thank you. See you next week. That's not doing life together. And here's the cool thing is they were doing life together, and uh, they actually enjoyed it. I love that phrase that uh, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That word glad in one translation has the idea of unaffected joy. No matter what was going on in their lives, when they were with these other people that they were doing life with, they were just happy. You know what the problem is with so many of us as Christians? We're not happy. Remember at Easter when we told you, think about putting a sign up in your yard? Remember saying, hey, come to Northwest. You know, you don't have a church to go to. Come to Northwest on Easter Sunday. And I made the comment, and we kind of all laughed about, some of you shouldn't do that. Some of you shouldn't do that. You know why? Because you are a miserable Christian. I mean, you're not happy about anything. That's why it's easy for you to slip into movie mode and evaluation mode and what I like and what I don't like and what it should look like and what it, because it's all about you. And one of the reasons why you're not happy is because it's all about you. When it stops being all about you and it's others-centered, like it was in the early church, they actually had glad and generous hearts. Like they were the coolest people to hang out with. I want so much for our church to be known as a church with people who are fun to hang out with, to do life with. I want people that are around me that don't necessarily believe into everything that I say and do and don't necessarily espouse to everything that I believe about who God is and how he wants me to live my life. I, I still want them to find me when they interact with me, somebody that they enjoy being around. One of the reasons why some of us never have an influence for the cause of Christ is because we're frankly boring, mean people. Don't be that way. Have glad and generous hearts. When people come in here, man, our kids, our kids ought to say, man, I can't wait to get there. Not a bunch of stuffy adults, you know, who can't. Man, I want them to love to be here, don't you? I want our kids out there in our children's ministry to go. It's the greatest place to be. It isn't Disney World. It's Northwest because of what Jesus has done in our lives. Last metaphor is a health club. We, we think of a health club, don't we, as someplace to go and get in shape. In fact, I've thought about the possibility of getting a health club membership just so I can see the monthly dues come out of my account and feel better about myself because at least I'm making a donation to the cause of health. Because here's the truth of the matter, right? You look at the business model and you go, come on, $19 a month? There's no way they can sustain this place for $19 a month. Well, not if everybody came. The business model works because so many of us, just like with Netflix, right? So many of us are willing to pay that monthly fee and we don't think about it. It's not that much money, but we have no intention of using it. Now Netflix may be different because now that I think about it, I kind of do like Netflix. Have you noticed that most health, health clubs, though, are full of people who look like they already are in perfect shape and really don't need to be there? Of course, the reason they look that way, I, I realize the reason they look that way is because they are there. Do you, ever, do you ever go by these places and they got all these glass windows and there's people that are on these machines, and I'm looking going, I would never exercise in the front of that window. You go, I see why he wants to exercise in front of the window. If I look like that, I'd want the world to see it too. But I don't. I don't want to go in that place. Researchers have discovered that the people that need the health club the most don't feel comfortable going. They look around at the people that are there, and they feel judged, and they feel out of place. You understand the metaphor a little bit? There was an article that I heard a man referred to this week, and then I went online and read it in the Chicago Tribune back in July of 2013 that highlighted a new kind of health club. You can't join the health club unless you have at least 50 pounds or more to lose. It's awesome. I mean, that's my kind of health club. 
In fact, in the article, it said that they have frosted windows in the front. And I thought, that's true. Because I'm telling you, if I'm there doing this, and I got the spandex on and the t-shirt, you want frosted windows. That's what you want. You don't want clear windows next door to the restaurant that you're going to. And what you see me is, you know, and you see me, you don't want that. So they got frosted windows. Unless you have 50 pounds to lose, you can't join this club. And the cool thing is that everybody goes there. They have the same goal. They have the same. They all realize we've got a problem. We need to take care of it. This is a problem most churches, including ours, can have. We all try our best to look a certain way, just like at the gym. You think if you walk in with the Under Armour on, the right name brand, you got cool shoes on, you know, get a spray tan, something like that. You know, if you do all of that, then you look like you belong there. And we do our best to do that when we come in here on a Sunday morning. We try our best to appear like we have it all together. We want our... We want other people to think our marriages are all together and, and the parenting that we're doing is producing great results. Just look at them. We read our Bibles daily and we pray, of course, without ceasing. We have no questionable habits. Our thoughts are always pure and our language is only that which makes God happy. The problem is that's not where most of us live on a regular basis. And don't we want Northwest to be a place where people feel like it's safe to explore who Jesus is and his claim on their life? We want to be a place where people who need answers feel comfortable hanging out until they find those answers. I've said it many times this way, it's okay to come into Northwest messed up, it's just not okay to stay that way. We believe that when you come to understand who Jesus is and you enter into a relationship with him and you understand how he says life is lived best in order that you might experience it as he intended for it to be, that everything changes. We don't want Northwest to be like a typical health club. We want to be a place where the people that need help the most feel comfortable coming for that help. And that was certainly true in Acts chapter 2, at verse 40, look at verse 47. People were coming to Jesus every day. It says they were adding to their number every single day. I mean, we're talking, we're talking like a few months after Jesus died and was resurrected. They're, they, they were in a position to know if this gospel was really true. Yet every day, and verse 43 says, an awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was doing something, and I want to submit to you this morning that when we are that kind of church, that the same things will be said about Northwest. We will have the answers. We will be a refuge, a place of hope for a world that is hopelessly confused, that's disillusioned, that is scared. That's what God intended for the church to be when he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit's going to come, he's going to indwell you, he's going to empower you, and you're going to be capable of being my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. As a result of that, here's what happened. Think about it in the context of world events right now. People from all over came to know Jesus. They began, in fact, in fact, if we were to study through the whole book of Acts, there's some really cool stuff where Peter has to be confronted with some of his racial prejudices that he has. Because people from all over the place, Jews, Gentiles, they're coming to know Jesus. The wealthy and poor who followed Jesus became known as brothers and sisters. Now, for some of you, you go, well, that doesn't really mean that much. You know, I've got wealthy friends who like poor people, and that wasn't true in this culture. In the culture in which Luke is writing, wealthy people didn't hang out with poor people. Poor people didn't hang out with wealthy people. They were separated. The difference was when people came to faith in Jesus, all of a sudden, what happened? They started hanging out together. Not only hanging out together, but they said, that's my brother. That's my sister. Wealthy, poor. The wealthy people who knew Jesus, their other wealthy people are going, what are you hanging out with him for? Because they're family. 
but not really. Educated and uneducated became known as family. Here's what's really cool. Men and women with different colors of skin, who spoke different languages, and who came from very different backgrounds became so close that they shared everything they had with each other. Let me tell you that. Only the gospel can produce that kind of result. And all you have to do is look around the world that you and I are living in right now, today, July 17th, 2016, and you know that to be true. Politicians have tried it. Jesus accomplishes it. Someone has said that the gospel is the great equalizer, that the field becomes level at the foot of the cross because that's where everybody who will enter into a relationship with Jesus must begin, right there at the foot of the cross. That's why we say the gospel is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, what color your skin is, how educated you are or uneducated you are. The gospel is the great equalizer. And I'll close by saying this. 2,000 years ago, the church was the answer to a world that was in chaos, that had lots of problems, that had lots of prejudice, that had cultures that were clashing with one another. The gospel 2,000 years ago was the answer. It was the solution. And I want to remind you, in case you have forgotten, that that's what God today intends for this church and those like it to be all across the globe. That's what we're to be like. And I go a step further as to say, you don't want to be that kind of a church. You don't want to be challenged to be that kind of a Christ follower. We still want you to hang out because you might change your mind. But I'll just tell you this, you're going to be miserable on a regular basis because we're going to point you back to this. Paul Tripp summed it up well when he wrote, your life is much bigger than a good job and understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you're part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be part of it, and it's called the church. And this is where we see it begin. And as a result, a world that was chaotic found answers. May we be that kind of a church. Amen? Do you want to be that kind of a people? That's what we want to be known for? Difference makers? Rather than just simply buying into the narrative and being part of a problem. Enter into that conduit, the church, that God's designed to be the answer for a world in chaos. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I've gone way over my time this morning, and yet I didn't say everything that I, that I wanted to say, certainly out of this text. I just pray, God, that you just simply, you just allow us to be this kind of a church in a world that's in chaos, in a world that's looking for direction, that's looking for answers, that's confused, that's cynical, that's scared. May we direct them to the foot of the cross and may we find answers there, we pray. In Jesus' name.